In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we are looking at how Jesus taught us to pray. How did he teach us to pray? Not how do other people teach us to pray. How did Jesus teach us to pray? Because remember, we're in the middle, the very center of the Sermon on the Mount now, which means um, he has taken us up to this pinnacle, and this is it. The Lord's Prayer is the height of the sermon because everything else structurally falls outward from this prayer that you just prayed with us. Well, Actually, I hope you just prayed it. You might have just said words, but we'll get into that in a second. How did Jesus teach us to pray? Um, so remember, he opened the Sermon on the Mount with the Beatitudes, which we had recited just momentarily when we lit the candles. The Beatitudes, we do that, by the way, with the lighting of the candles, because it reminds us that this is the path of light. This is what Jesus called the good life. Blessed in the Greek means the good life. The good life looks like these qualities. These are the virtues, the nature of Christ himself. And Jesus invites us into this life right off the bat. Then he tells us that he wants to make us into creatures who become righteous people. We don't just do good things and we don't just try to get our act together and self-help ourselves. Actually, he wants to enter into us through virtue and make us righteous. He gives us all these examples in the rest of chapter five, like no longer is it just don't kill somebody. It's make sure your heart is in the right place toward all people. No hatred. It's no longer just as long as I don't cross that line with sexual sin. It's it's make sure your heart is in the right place and doesn't treat people a certain way that you don't view them a certain way. So he goes through the way, those examples of what does it like look, look what does it look like to become a person of character, virtue, and righteousness. So then he ends it by saying, you must therefore be perfect as your father in heaven is perfect. And you like, say what? And then we looked at that verse on its own a couple weeks ago by itself. Um, what Jesus is calling us to is to what we were called to become. Uh, it doesn't mean sinless. It just means that you are reaching your completion in him. Um, and then he gives us what we entered and we're in the middle of now is three tools, three tools for how do we cultivate the Beatitudes. How do we cultivate this virtue and this righteousness in us? He doesn't give us a list of things to, um, a list of rules and says, if you keep these rules, you're good and righteous. Rather, he gives us practices which are meant to shape and mold us into the kinds of creatures that will by habit or biblically by nature conform to these virtues and those Beatitudes. So Chase taught us through giving. Giving is the first practice Jesus gives us. It's the first tool he puts in our hands and says, you use this tool, it will make you a person who's less self-centered. And then he gives us the tool of prayer, which we began two weeks ago. Remember last week, Dane, my friend, came and shared. Dane Bundy, does anybody remember him? Was he here last week? I'm sorry. Um, uh so, but then um, we're gonna, we're picking up prayer again because I, remember I told you we'll look at the the Lord's prayer on its own in a future week. So this is that week. So the second tool is prayer. What's the third tool? I already told you. Fasting. So next week we'll look at the third tool, fasting. Okay. So we we read the text. Um, we prayed the text. We just didn't do verse fourteen and fifteen. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So Jesus, we saw last time, told us how, 
different ways to pray. Don't pray like hypocrites. Hypocrites pray to be seen. Your father already sees you. You don't have to get that kind of attention. Then he told us not to pray in verse 7 like the Gentiles or as some translations, the heathen, those that worship idols and false gods and demons. He says, look, you don't have to babble like them because they have to be informed what you're thinking. But your heavenly father already knows what you need before you ask him. So you don't need to pray to be seen. You don't need to pray to be heard. You pray because he is our father. And if you remember, we defined that as praying is simply embracing the father's embrace back. That's what it is to pray. This, his arms intertwined with our arms and we become his sons and his children and his daughters. So now he gives us this prayer to pray. Our father in heaven. Now, Theophan the recluse was an 18th, 18th century, 19th century. 18th century Russian, and he he did a couple writings on prayer, which are phenomenal. And he cautions us this way. He says, not every act of prayer is prayer. Not every act of prayer is prayer. Merely repeating the Lord's Prayer, like we just did, is not necessarily prayer. But I said a prayer. It doesn't guarantee it. That's why I asked. Maybe we weren't all praying the prayer. Some of us maybe were praying the prayer. So here's how he continues to explain it. Theophan. He continues to explain it as um, prayer like the Lord's Prayer. Anytime you come to a written out prayer and you read it or recite it, because maybe you have it memorized, you recite it. Just saying it doesn't mean it's prayer. Opening to Psalm 23 and reading it doesn't mean it's prayer. Rather, what he says is these written prayers like the Lord's Prayer are tools in order to awaken prayer within us. So I recite the Lord's Prayer, and it's meant to awaken a prayerful heart. Here's how he explains that prayerful heart. He says, prayer itself is the piercing of our hearts by pious feelings toward God. So that when I pray, the heart is pierced with feelings for God. If, if, if you're just coldly saying words, even if they're your own words, these words matter not. The heart must be pierced with feelings toward God. Then he describes these feelings like this. This is just a, it's like the top of his head examples because he ends it with etc. He says some of these feelings are humility. Do you ever feel humility when you pray? Submission gratitude, praise, forgiveness, heartfelt prostration. That's when you're on your face bowing. Brokenness, conformity to the will of God, etc. Those are examples of the feelings that should pierce the heart when your words are being prayed. And if not, it's not prayer. So he continues... All of our efforts should be directed so that during our prayer, these feelings and feelings like them should fill our souls so that the heart would not be empty when the lips are reciting your prayer or when your ears hear. Some of you were hearing prayers a moment ago. And where was the heart? 
When these feelings are present, our praying is prayer. And when they are absent, it is not yet prayer. So how do you pray the Lord's Prayer? Jesus said, he taught us some some visions for prayer. Your father sees you, he hears you, come and embrace him. This is what prayer is. But then he told us to pray our father in these words. Some people struggle praying set words like that. Some people thrive in them. Um, Jesus told us to at least with this prayer, pray these words of this prayer. He didn't call it a model prayer. We last time looked at it as a foundational prayer, meaning it's the first prayer to learn and it's the prayer you never stop. Because this prayer is an abbreviation of all prayers and all prayers are an expansion of this prayer. In fact, um, Bonhoeffer, Diedrich Bonhoeffer said that the Psalms, all 150 Psalms are just riffs off of the Lord's Prayer. The Psalms expand it and the Lord's Prayer condenses the whole Psalter. This, this is the foundational prayer. We should learn to pray it. How do you then pray words like that? You feel. The words must be said with intention so that the heart responds to the words. I like that better than maybe feel because sometimes we get very touchy-feely. It's about the heart responding to the words. And it generally comes with a feeling. So when you pray, Our Father, what happened in your heart? I was thinking about, I wish I got more pizza before it was gone tonight at dinner. Uh, No, see, you missed it. Your head was here and your heart was somewhere, the prayer was somewhere in between. What we want is the focus of the words to meet the heart. That is where it's at. And that's what Theophan is teaching us. So this is what we need to understand. If we nail this down, then you will find more fruit in five words of prayer than you will find in five hours of trying to fill space with your words. Did you hear that? Prayer is about our connection with God, not about some duty. And I did a certain amount of hours, so I got holier because I only did two hours when I was first saved. Like, wow. I mean, if you do that, by the way, like crazy. But um, John of Constra- John of uh, Kronstadt, another Russian Christian, uh, he had a beautiful way of saying this. I've heard this all over the place. He said, when praying, keep to the rule that it is better to say five words from the depth of your heart than 10,000 words with your tongue only. How do you hold the arm? How do you be embraced by your father and embrace your father back? It's by saying something with the heart, not by babbling. And thinking, I'm holy because I got to 30 minutes. So, prayer should pierce the heart. I now want to tell you why we should pray this prayer as it is. I've heard a lot of people say it should be prayed just as a model. Because praying it word for word could become dead. Well, I just showed you that if it's dead, it's because your heart's dead. Okay, it's not the prayer's fault. Um, We should pray this prayer word for word. Now, if you want to use it as a model too, to like springboard you into other things to pray... Fantastic. But woe to us if we don't learn Jesus' words before using our own words. Like, why are my words better than his? That's the angle we're looking at this at. So why should we pray the Lord's Prayer as it is? Why do we say it every Sunday? Why did the early Christians in the first, during the New Testament period, there's a document called the Didache, and it says Christians prayed the Lord's Prayer three times a day. Why? 
I want to give us five reasons why we should do this. But before I do that, yeah, I'll give you five reasons why you should do this. First, Mm -hmm. my own words are a poor substitute for God's words. My own words are a poor substitute for God's words. Cyprian of Carthage, Carthage is like northern Africa, right? He was in the third century. That's the 200s. Very early Christian. And he wrote a book on the Lord's Prayer. And one of the things he said in it is this. Therefore, let us pray, dearest brothers, just as God the Master has taught us. What is he saying? Let us pray according to the Lord's Prayer. It's how he taught us. Imploring God in his own words, sending up to his ears the prayer of Christ. He was imploring early Christians, use the words of Christ when you pray. This is because my words are a poor substitute for these words. Second reason we should use these words. My words can produce an undue burden and burnout in prayer. Burden and burnout. Have you ever felt burden in prayer? Have you ever felt burnout in prayer? Now, sometimes you feel burden because you're praying for somebody. That's fine. Like, that's a good thing. But I mean the burden of prayer itself is a burden. And then you kind of burn out of it. I found in my life, a lot of that was when I put the emphasis on, unless I say my own unique creative words, it doesn't count because it's not from the heart. How many times can you pray uniquely? Besides, since when did God say, I'm judging your words in prayer? If the heart posture is there, I can pray the same prayer verbatim a thousand times a day and still be benefiting from the presence of God. Um. Your words can eventually become their own rut anyways. And then you kind of feel like you're stuck. Uh, Third reason, my words can distract me and lead me to babble. Have you ever caught yourself doing that? You start off really good, but then you start finding yourself praying about the words you just prayed (laughs) or, or thinking like overthinking it. That's actually what we're taught. Um, from, you guys remember John of the Ladder? We haven't mentioned him in a while, but we, John of the Ladder is a well-quoted friend of ours. Uh, this is what he said. He said, do not try to talk much when you pray. Otherwise, you will wind up preoccupied with finding the right words. Yeah. I can totally relate to that. A single word from the tax collector appeased God, and one cry in faith delivered the thief. Remember the thief on the cross? And the tax collector, God be merciful to me, sinner. And the thief on the cross, Lord, remember me in your kingdom. These prayers brought radical change. Um, The verbal eloquence in prayer often distracts the mind and results in fantasies. But terseness, that's shortness to a point, shortness and directness. It gives focus. So learn to pray the Lord's prayer well, and you're going a long way. Doesn't that sound manageable? I can learn to pray these words with all my heart rather than just trying to fill space all the time. Now, when you do that and you focus on the words, you may find a natural wellspring of things that come afterward. But just start with the goal of the Lord's prayer. There's no excuse that you can't pray a 20-second prayer. There's no excuse, right? Just start there. And if you end there, you did what Jesus said. And if you go beyond that, cool. Uh, number four, I said I had five. So number four, my own words can misdirect me. 
my own words can actually misdirect me. Um, here's how um, Tertullian of Carthage, so same place as Cyprian, he's 100 years earlier. He's in the 100s. He was a pastor there. He also wrote a book on this prayer. And this is what he said about praying it. He said, um, we have the right to construct a secondary top story of pleas for additional desires on the foundation, as it were. What's he saying? Sometimes old people go about it like really long-winded, right? You have the right to have a second story prayer. He means the first, the foundation is the Lord's prayer. Your, Your prayers are up here. He says, you have the right to do that. But what are you going to see he's going to say? It's, it's based upon the foundational prayer. So you have a right to do that, as it were. Um, but our rehearsal of the proper and normal prayer, the Lord's prayer, um, must come first. Yet we must be mindful of his directions, since our distance from his directions is distance from the ears of God. What he was saying, you may agree with him or not, but what he was teaching in the 100s to his church was that the, the, the degree to which my words depart from the Lord's prayer is the degree to which my words depart from the ear of God. Now, that's not to say it always has to be verbatim if you're departing, but it is to say that it must be the foundational prayer from which your prayers go. And it will corral you from needlessly babbling things. And then fifth and finally... Um, my own words cannot, this is most important to me, by the way, my own words cannot lead me beyond myself. We want to grow. We want to grow into Christ. We want him to pull us with his grace into his nature. We want to find that communion and union where our nature is infused with his. This is what we're after as Christians. I'm not going to get there with my ideas. I know my ideas have produced the Brandon James McCulloch, whom I've been trying to outgrow for a long time. My words can only express who I am in the moment. But prayers that are given to us can actually pull us somewhere else. And so insofar as they're correct and biblically based prayers, they will pull us straight to the presence of God. I have to be led beyond myself to go where I've never been. And if I want to grow, I must be led, which is why when we gather on Sundays, you're led in worship. You're led in songs. You're led in prayers. And sometimes you might be like, I just want to pray this right now. But your leader is saying, not yet. There's a time and place for that prayer. But right now we're hearing scripture. Right now we're, we're praying thanksgiving in response to the psalm. Right now we're reciting the Beatitudes. Right, right. There's, there's a time and a place. That's what it means to be led, curbing our impulses, and being led by someone outside of us to go beyond ourselves. Those are reasons to pray the Lord's prayer verbatim. So, all this to say, at the end of what we're saying here, is there are two types of prayers. There are formed prayers. Those are prayers that are given to you with a form. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. That's a formed prayer. It has a form. Then there's free prayers. When you sit down, you go like, dear Lord, I just really don't like my supervisor right now. Uh, he surprised me with too many things, and he told me I'm not on the clock when I thought I was on the clock, and I'm really upset. Free prayer, right? That didn't really happen, by the way. Um, well, only sort of, kind of. It's stretched and blown out of proportion. Uh, <laughs> the free prayer. You're just letting, like, whatever's there is coming out. We need both. We need a balance of both. 
Free prayers make our hearts free. You feel bound up with anger about someone. You should probably just talk that out. It's a free prayer. It frees you. A formed prayer forms you. Because a formed prayer doesn't just keep reinforcing my attitude and my feelings. A formed prayer takes me to the heart of Christ. Especially like the Lord's Prayer. It says, this is how you see the world. This is how we talk to God. This is how we ask him for things. It's like, oh, okay, I'm being shaped. I'm being formed. So we need both. It's only good to pray our free prayers once we've approached God in his formed prayer. Now, I happen to use a lot of formed prayers. But I'm encouraging you to use at least this one. Christ's formed prayer. Start there. And then pray what's on your heart. So those are my instructions. Now let's go through the prayer itself so that you know how your heart should feel, how it should respond to these words. Okay? So um, if all goes well, we're already halfway through this message, which for some of you are like, what? (laughs) How is he doing this? (laughs) Okay. So um, this is the prayer of all prayers. The prayer of prayers. Like literally, this is the prayer of prayers. It's the one Jesus told us to pray. I already told you about how the Psalms kind of riff off of it, and this is a consolidation of it. Um, others have said other things, so you got the point there. Um, this prayer, as we already recapped, is about our embracing our Father. So if you want to read around the prayer again, Father is mentioned six times in this whole section, and it's really emphasizing that this is meant to be relationship. Um, so let's pray the prayer and let's look at it. So it begins with our father in heaven. Okay. So this is going to have a nice balance to it. It has three petitions at the top and three petitions at the bottom in between is heaven and earth. Heaven and earth were together in the garden of Eden. Heaven and earth were separated when we chose to not dwell with heaven, but to do things our way on earth. So that was what we call the fall. And the two were separated because humanity said, yeah, we'll, we'll, we got this. Thank you, God. And we separated. Um, but in this prayer, the two are brought back together. So three prayers address heaven. And then the bottom three prayers address earth. And the prayer is meant to bring the two together. Also, to just go one more nerdy step, when Christ became human to accomplish our salvation, he is heaven and he took on earth. And he didn't just like heaven's like, okay, I'll get a little dusty with earth. It's more like heaven's nature, God's nature uh, intertwined with the human nature to the degree that what our early Christian theologians said was that the two natures became one without confusion or without mingling. uh, I'm sorry, uh, without mixing, um, without diluting. They were two natures completely united in one person. Now, that might sound like a lot of jargon. But when you start to think about it, it's actually the most important theological fact you can make. I am convinced that the incarnation of Christ is the most fundamental and the most misunderstood Christian doctrine, unfortunately. Um, When these two natures, when his two natures commingle, the human and the divine, he became the new Adam so that we too, my human nature, can mingle with his nature So that heaven and earth, Brandon and God, can once again be embraced in that hug. Father, son. This is what salvation is about. Okay, we get lost with lesser stories of salvation like like hell and sin and those like 
I'm saved so I don't go there. Like, that's a really, really juvenile story of salvation. The upper escalon is why Christ came is to unite us to God. This is what we're growing after and going after. Um, so the balance of this prayer, there you have it. Three petitions to heaven, three petitions from earth, and the middles where they are meeting together. So we, we pray the first petition, uh, it's actually just an address, our Father in heaven. What do we mean by Father? John Chrysostom told us last time, and I will repeat you repeat it for you again, that anyone who says Father acknowledges these truths about him. When you say Father, you're acknowledging that you have forgiveness of sins, removal of punishment, righteousness, sanctification, redemption, adoption, inheritance. We'll talk about that one in a second. Brotherhood with Christ. We'll also talk about that one in a moment. And supply of the Holy Spirit. Wait, what? Brotherhood with Christ means you've been elevated totally and you're sharing his nature if you're his brother. Brotherhood with Christ. The Bible says this too, by the way, in Romans 8. We'll look at that in a second. Brotherhood with Christ. And we have supply of the Holy Spirit. Do you know what happens when you say Father? You're not just addressing one isolated being up there somewhere. You're addressing the Holy Trinity. Father is our entrance into being inserted in the midst of this self uh this this flowing love and peace and joy in which son is pouring his whole self into the father and the spirit and the father and spirit are pouring their whole selves into the son and the spirit to the son and the father and the son and the father back to the son all three ways they're constantly pouring each other out eternally from beginning eternal to forever eternity they are constantly in this flowing re- dynamic relationship and when you pray our father you are brought by the spirit and in your kinship to christ into the midst of this big deal our father in heaven that does not mean he's up there and you're down here the greek is literally in the heavens it's a plural word and that's really an important nuance because heavens, according to ancient people, was everything from way up there, including galaxies and stars, to the air around you. There were layers of the heavens. That's why they called them heavens. Our father in the heavens means here in the air I'm breathing. So you're not appealing. You're not petitioning, sending a work order. You're in being embraced now our father in the heavens um then so here's the first petition hallowed be your name and you're like i know a howard but i don't know what hallowed means (laughs) hallowed just means to sanctify i don't know what that means either sanctify means to make holy i don't know what that means either make holy means to set aside for a certain purpose and that's what you're praying may your name be reserved for let it be glorified. Let it be unique. I don't want to drag this name around saying, if you don't do this, God will be mad at you. Who, who's ever heard a Christian leader use God's name in a way to manipulate you? Mm-hmm. That's not hallowing God's name. Um, I found hallowing helpful to think of. It's not hallowing. Hallow spelled with an A. Hollow spelled with an O. If I hollow something, I'm taking the substance out of it. And now it's just a shell. Knock, 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 hollow. Like some people's heads, right? Um, 
But if I hollow something, I'm doing the reverse work. I'm putting the substance back into it. I'm giving it weight. I'm making it real. That's what we mean by hallowed be your name. Let it be exalted, set apart, and at its fullest glorious form in my life and in the lives and all people around me. Um, so that's hallowed. What about your name? What is God's name? It's not God, by the way. God's a title. God just means king, ruler, judge. That's all it means. Not all it means. I mean, God, I hope I, I, if you gave me that title, it would not be merely. It would be like, whoa, whoa. Um, but God, yeah, God's a title. But what's his name? Jesus. You're too fast. One step before that. Someone said Exodus. Exodus 34. Yeah. Yeah. So when Moses is at the burning bush, who shall I tell them sent me? He said, I am that I am. Tell them that. That's the name Yahweh. Um, That's God's actual name. Now, it was the Jews hallowed the name. They took it reverently. So they refused to say the name lest they use his name in vain, the third commandment. Um. But here's what happens is, as Tyler already broke the climax, um, we come to Philippians chapter 2, verse 9, and we're told that God has exalted Jesus to be the name above all names. Now, I never put this together until this week. That means the above the name Yahweh as well. If the Jews couldn't even say that name. So here's what we're given. We're given the name of Jesus and we're told to say. We're actually told to say that name, Jesus. And this is more holy than Yahweh. This is why we don't have a problem with saying Yahweh because although it's not nothing, it's just that Jesus is the name of names. Hallowed be your name. We come to him in and through Jesus and that's the exaltation of Christ. So the second request is your kingdom come, your kingdom come. Um, did you know that that's also the last prayer in the Bible? Come, Lord Jesus, Revelation 22. At the end of 1 Corinthians 16, there's also the prayer, come, Lord Jesus. And I love that the New King James doesn't even translate it. It leaves it alone. It's a Greek word, which means come, Lord Jesus. It's Maranatha. So when at the end of our service tonight, um, you hear people say Maranatha, It means, come, Lord Jesus. Um, And so we're praying here, your kingdom come. So we want to see his kingdom here on earth in all of its glory. And that means, Lord, so you're praying, our Father, your kingdom come. I want to be in your kingdom because I want to be that close to you. I want what you want. I want the rules that you establish because your kingdom has its way of doing things. I want that. Um, but here's the other truth we need to realize that as sons of this father, we inherit the kingdom. It's not just something we get to go inside of and tour. Oh, so glad this isn't hell. It's actually something we possess with Christ. The name above all names who will be on the throne of David over this kingdom. We will inherit it with him. I'm not making this up. Go to Romans 8 if you want, or listen to me read it to you. Romans 8 verse 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you, now daughters too, but you will, I'm not going to go into it tonight, but go back to last time. You will hear why the Bible uses sons instead of daughters. And it's actually a really important insight. I'm being made a son. Girls are being made into sons too. 
we're all having to become sons. But anyways, um, it's not a gender or sex thing at all. Um, so for all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons. We've all been adopted as sons. Wait, we've been adopted as sons of the father. Isn't Jesus the son of the, okay, wait a minute here. So then he continues by whom we cry, Abba father. So the Spirit teaches us to pray, Abba, Father. Um, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs, or New King James, joint heirs with Christ. So whatever Jesus is inheriting from the Father... You are equal joint heirs because you're part of the family. So when you pray your kingdom come, it's a loaded phrase. All right. Your will be done. The third petition to heaven, your will be done. What is the will of God for my life? People ask that all the time. He didn't say pray your will for my life. He said, pray your will be done. Do you know God has a specific will for us as a whole. And he does have unique things for you too. But he has one will. You should never ask, what is God's will for me after reading what we're about to read? Because you'll know what God's will is for you. Then you'll figure out how to do that in detail in your own unique way down the road. But it's 1 Thessalonians 4. 1 Thessalonians 4. Verse 1. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through Jesus Christ, or through the Lord Jesus. Here it is. For this is the will of God, your, justifi- your sanctification. This is the will of God, your sanctification. That means your growth in holiness. That means you're walking farther away from sin and more into the virtues of Christ. Your sanctification. That's his will for you. Then he goes on to describe more about what sanctification looks like. You can read that on your own. Um, But he talks about not letting the passions overcome your flesh. Um, Things like that. So that's his will. Your will be done. Get me on board to love what you love, to desire what you desire, that I may walk in your sanctification. On earth as it is in heaven. Here we come to the center of the prayer. Your, his will is done in heaven. Do you know that? Nothing in heaven opposes God's will. On earth, however, shoot, I oppose his will all the time. Sometimes not knowingly, and then I know it, and like, oh, Lord, oh, forgive me. Sometimes on purpose, because I'm just like, I am too stupid right now to care. Mm-hmm. Um, the Psalms put it like this in a couple places, but 115, Psalm 115, verse 16, lays out very clear. It says that the heavens are the Lord's, and the earth is given to the children of men. Earth is what we call the place where humans do their stuff. Earth is what we call the place where God does his stuff. Now, God wants the two working together. We are doing our best to keep them apart. This is why the prayer says, we want God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Unrestrained will of God here on earth. 
That starts with you and me. It starts with our daily choices. And it spreads as the church as a whole does these choices. And then the church becomes pure and doing the right thing. And then that spreads to people who say, what kind of a kingdom are those people living in? They're not typical Americans. And like this is how that is supposed to work. Now we come to the earthly petitions, which are really actually just looking from earth to heaven and saying, we have needs. Heaven, come meet our needs. That's what these next three are going to ask. So we come to give us this day our daily bread, our first earthly petition. Give us this day our daily bread. Now, I've heard people misunderstand this terribly. Um, I've heard one guy say, that's all? Shouldn't we be praying for more than daily bread? God's a good and generous giving God. And like, let's pray for truckloads of bread. It's like, Jesus, like, he's clearly not praying the prayer word for word. Uh, No, actually, he's missing the point entirely. We often miss it entirely. And sometimes we're like, what's the deal with bread? Like, I've got lots of bread. I don't need daily bread. Um, Yeah, you got to think like the Bible world for a second. Where did daily bread happen in the Bible? There was a time when bread was a daily, miraculous occurrence. What was it? The manna that fell from where? The Bible is crystal clear that it wasn't just bread that materialized on the ground. It came from heaven. They ate, the Psalms say, the bread of angels. This was heaven's food, which means that it gave to their bodies more nourishment than just a really healthy loaf of Dave's famous killer bread or Ezekiel bread can give you, right? This was spiritual, physical bread. This is what Jesus is telling us to pray for. Give us this day our daily bread. You may notice in your, if you're looking at your Bible, there's a footnote in most of them that will say something to the effect that it can also be translated, uh, give us bread for tomorrow. Yeah, that's talking about Bread from the age to come. The bread we'll be eating in heaven, give that to us today. Same kind of idea, right? Heaven's bread for us now. Um, another way to most literally translate this is that when it's talking about give us this day, um, our daily. Why is it saying day and daily? Daily is actually a really weird Greek word, and it's not used anywhere else that we know of in the Greek language. So we can't compare how to translate it to other contexts. So translators are just basically saying, we got to do our best here. Um, Sometimes it's awkward to translate words literally because then you get, this is how you'd literally translate this this whole line. It would read like this. Our bread above nature give us today. Like, can we unscramble that a little bit? Um, So just give you an idea how like Greek does that. Um, What's going on here with daily bread is it's, it's the Greek word epiousia, epiousia. Now, you actually could probably figure this out. Uh, epi is a prefix, and it means up or above. And usia is the w- word for nature. So when we talk about Christ's nature, human nature, the divine nature, that's usia. Epiousia is referring to a higher nature or an upper nature, um, which is also an awkward way to say it. Give us your upper nature bread. Like, what are you, what are we saying? Uh, so it can be translated as supernatural upper nature, supernatural bread. So that what you're praying for is give us this day our supernatural bread. Or I prefer give us this day our heavenly bread. And so what we're ultimately asking for is Christ. 
We're asking that we feast on him this day who said, I am the bread of life. This is a, this is a constant plea. Christ be in me. Christ nourish me. Christ fill me. Christ preserve me. Because we are walking through the wilderness like the Israelites. Forgive us our Good job, Connor. We pray trespasses. The Bible says debts. We've been doing it wrong forever. I literally, like, I just assumed, right? Because I've been using the ESV. I grew up on the New King James. There's a point where I used the King James. I've been using the ESV for, like, 12 years. And I kind of just got to a point where I assumed, like, oh, yeah, it's just the newer translations use debts. And then I started to poke around. I'm like, no, the New King James uses debts. Oh, it's the King James. What? The King James uses debts? I'm literally looking at every single English translation. They all translate it debts. And I'm going, where did we come up with forgive us our trespasses? That's the way I always learn to pray it. That's the way most people learn to pray it. What, what happened? So then I did a little scholarly review on Google. Um, and it turns out that it came from the Book of Common Prayer in 1553. Um, that was the first edition of the Book of Common Prayer. And the Bible that was being used then, do you know the King James Bible is not even written then? The Bible that was in use was the Tyndale Bible, and the Tyndale Bible translated trespasses. Now, you may have heard the Book of Common Prayer is under the Bible the most influential book on the American language. Well, now you know why. The Book of Common Prayer did it, so people have been praying trespasses forever and ever and ever. Unless you intentionally correct yourself. However, pause, I'm going to say there's nothing wrong with praying trespasses. In fact, I still pray trespasses because I think debts has a awkward connotation in our current context. Um, because of um, hyperfixation on things like uh, having a ledger with God and my sin puts me in debt. And like we can often pray, forgive us our debts in a way that makes us feel very distant from God. If I'm in debt and he's the debtor and he's demanding from me, not a good, not a good way to approach him. So trespasses is fine because it implies more of I crossed a line, but I can be cleansed from that. There's not an insurmountable debt that I'm buried under. Now I feel like I can't even lift my eyes to God. Like trespasses, I think just fits maybe the way we think of these words better. But then wait, there's more. Look at verse 14 and 15. And what does Jesus say? He uses the word trespasses. That's in the Greek. What's he commenting on? He's commenting on this prayer. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And then he, he comments on it. Forgiving your trespass. You will not, your trespass won't be forgiven unless you forgive your trespassers. So clearly, it's an interchangeable word. There you go. Case closed. Okay. Um, so what are you praying there? This is confession. This is I'm a sinner. But then it's also stopping to realize I'm also a sinner in the way I hand, not just what I do to God, but what I do to my neighbor. So I need to forgive those who trespass against me because I can actually be in greater guilt if I'm holding stuff against them. So it's a, it's a full round prayer for cleansing. And then the last and final petition coming in two lines is for deliverance. 
Um, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now, someone, when we were reciting the prayer, I heard them mutter out evil one. Who was that? Connor. Okay. Bad Connor. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, yeah, no, his footnotes will always say, or evil one. Uh, the King James actually just translates it, the New King James translates it, evil one. Uh, that is the proper way to translate this. Let's be honest. We're not praying for general deliverance from general evil. We have a foe. And we have minimized him and put him in a dusty closet. And we've psychologized sin to the point of, it's just your insecurities acting out. I'm sorry, that is not a biblical view of the world. Um, yes, we have securities and we act out of them. Right, that's true, but that's not what sin is. Sin is the work of the devil manipulating us with thoughts. We give in to the thoughts and we sin. We need deliverance from the evil one. And so we are praying. Because when you pray the Lord's Prayer and you're on this path towards uh, being unified with him, who is going to try everything he can do to put a wedge between you and the Father? You are, you are invoking warfare upon your soul. You need this prayer. So, um, one, one, uh, one commentator said that this line is a one-liner summary of Psalm 91. If you know Psalm 91, you'll see it immediately. But it's the prayer that says... Uh, he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High abides in the shade of the Almighty, says to the Lord, my refuge, my stronghold, my God, in whom I trust. Yeah, you are the one I'm fleeing to in temptation for deliverance. Bless you. And then, though, that psalm continues and says, you shall tread on the lion and the viper, you will tread and trample the young lion and the serpent. Deliver us from the evil one, because he's going to empower us to walk right over him. That's why we're continually growing in our union with God. That's the prayer in a nutshell and how we can kind of go through it, uh, what the heart maybe should be responding to when we pray it. Do you see how there's a world of prayer in the words themselves? And you can feel the heart going to all of these petitions simultaneously as you simply say the words in the short amount of time it takes. It, it takes practice, but the more you pray the prayer, the more you're going to feel all kinds of things lift up with those words. And the prayer itself becomes such a solid, compact way to commune with your Lord. So, pray the Lord's Prayer with feeling. Pray it with attention. Because life is a moment-by-moment -moment choice about who you will commune with. Are you going to commune with your father or are you going to commune with the devil? And whichever I choose, my nature mingles with that nature. So that I am in the end either in the process of demonization or I'm in the process of divinization. Not that I become God, but that I become a joint heir with Christ of the things of God. Which one do you want? Because if, if you don't realize this, every moment there is a choice toward one of these communions. The Lord's Prayer is in your pocket to be used at any moment of need. What a gift to have it in our hearts and to be able to pray it at will. Yeah? Yeah? Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, 
both now and ever, and to ages of ages. Amen.